Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. There's an old Jewish folk tale that goes like this. A young man, aspiring to be holy, approached his rabbi and said, Rabbi, I think I have finally achieved entire sanctification. I fast till sundown. I work hard without expecting any thanks. I roll in thorn bushes when I have temptations of the flesh, and I whip myself before I go to bed at night. The rabbi paused and then led the young man to an old horse. That horse, he said, doesn't eat or drink during the day, just like you. Uh, That horse works hard all day and never gets thanked, just like you. That horse rolls in the briars as he sees fit and frequently gets whipped. And then he eyes the young man again and says, but that is a horse, not a saint. To be a saint is to be motivated not by whips and starvation, but by gratitude alone. We just read a symphony of gratitude in the form of Psalm 150. It's a veritable symphony of praise, and it is the final song and psalm within Israel's hymnal, deliberately placed at the very end of the largest book of the Bible, as a way to cap off and theologically say something about the entirety of the book. It is a psalm of collective praise. And that really is the emphasis of the entire Psalter, the entire book of Psalms, with all of its different voices and authors and accents and ideas. They all lead toward praise, articulated praise to Almighty God. In fact, in this particular psalm, the word praise is not just in every verse, it's in every half verse. It's really trying to emphasize something with crystal clarity. Uh, Psalm 150 tells us what to praise God for and what to praise God with. For and with are uh, words that are used repeatedly in this psalm. But that's what I want to talk about tonight what to praise God for, and what to praise God with. So we'll do the for and the with. The for is mentioned in verses 1 and 2. Namely, the psalmist is uh, seeking to elucidate reasons that we ought to praise, that we ought to articulate thanks and gratitude toward God. And we ought to praise God according to the psalmist for his qualities and his activities. Those two things inspire praise, God's qualities and God's activities. Uh, Beginning in verse 1, let me read those uh, verses for you. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His holiness. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him for His excellent greatness. Now, you may notice, in fact, you may want to underline uh, the qualities that are in this passage. That is, qualities, things that are innately part of God's divine nature, holiness, power, greatness, 
Uh, Let me just go through those very briefly. Praise God in His holiness. His holiness. That's a, a word that is attributed to God over 700 times in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, it means something akin to separateness. That is, separateness not from us. God is always interacting with us, but separateness, separate from defilement. God's holiness means that uh, He has a non-deformed nature. Now, you don't, and I don't, right? All of us are governed by all sorts of inner hysterias and malformations of love. That's how we function every day. God does not function that way. God is not capricious. God is not moody. God is not Zeus, right? God is not like the ancient Greek pantheon that was constantly at war with each other. God, in God's essence, represents complete holiness and unity within God's own self. So he's not compelled by the very dark compulsions that we are often uh, driven by. Uh, And holiness is something that inspires the psalmist to praise. Uh, Why? Because if you had an encounter with beauty that lacked defilement, you would praise to. Anything in your life that even comes close to that or mirrors that even slightly, you're drawn to it. Also awestruck by it, maybe dumbstruck by it, but there's something endlessly appealing to the saints of God about holy things. Now, I'm not drawing too neatly a comparison here, but I was recently in Washington, D.C., uh, <laughs> um, the, the bastion of holiness that it is. And uh, when I was there, I have to say, I, I was a dumbstruck. I'd never been to some of the monuments, but I, my children and I, along with my parents and uh, Monique, we all went. And I was standing there in the Lincoln Memorial. Now, if you've ever been there, it's quite beautiful. And the speeches of Lincoln are on the walls, etched there, uh, right near the, the throne in which he is, uh, his, this lovely statue is seated. Now, uh, there's many references to God, of course, in those speeches, but if you turn around and look out, you see, of course, the reflection pool, the Washington Monument, as well as the Capitol Building, right in front of you. And you think to yourself, these ideas, ideas of democracy and representation and stable governance were all instantiated by geniuses uh, to uh, offer the world a glimpse of beauty, a glimpse of something sublime, a glimpse of something that almost can't be instantiated in stone, but they tried. And I was very touched and actually deeply moved, not by what was going on in Washington necessarily, but what was represented in those monuments. And that's just one very small example, and you have your own of something that sought to make manifest the ineffable, something really, truly beautiful. And there's something awe-inspiring and dumbstrucking about it. Uh, and, and holiness is an, e- an even grander concept, an even grander so- concept, so grand, in fact, that in the Old Testament it was downright lethal, that, that raw holiness was seen as a, as a great thwarting of your person if you came into close encounters with it, right? Um, and so he praises God for this non-defilement, for this non-deformity of God's nature, this separateness. Praise God in His holiness. But he also says, praise God for his power, and later, praise God for his greatness. Praise God for his power, God for his greatness. You know, it's fascinating that the uh, psalmist and the Old Testament authors always saw God as the source of greatness and power. Now, why is this brilliant? Here's why it's brilliant. Because Jews looked at the numinous landscape that you look at. They saw Orion's belt. They saw the Mediterranean Sea. 
They saw, you know, the beauty of, uh, of their children growing up. I mean, they saw things that uh, continually wowed them. And yet, they, uh, in their best moments, in their non-polygamous, or not polygamous, non, um, what's the word for more than one religion or more than one God? Polytheism, thank you for sharing. Um, in their non-polytheistic moments, they never decided, you know what, let's build a temple to the Mediterranean Sea. Let's build a temple to worship children. Let's build a temple to worship the sun or the moon. They didn't do that. Instead, they were geniuses, inspired geniuses through, the, through profound revelation that as good as these uh, numinous things are, and as much as they embody they aren't worthy of worship because they're not ultimately the source of greatness or power. There is something deeper still, deeper still than the seas, deeper still than the skies. And if you want to encounter God, look lower. Look, look to the veritable foundation of those things, which is not they themselves. Look to the subterranean greatness. And they thought that we exist best and most healthily whenever we acknowledge that the foundation of greatness and power is not in the things we can see, but the things that are unseen, the things that ultimately manifested themselves in Christ, right? But things that are beyond uh, the created order. So praise God for His power and greatness, that all power and greatness that we experience on a day-to-day -day level, day -day level is only derivative of a prior, older, ancient of days greatness. Yeah. Uh, and so those are some of God's qualities that the psalmist is attached to. Praise God for His holiness, His power, His greatness. And he mentions just once God's activity. Now, this is a massive theme throughout the Psalter, but he simply says, in a very broad way, praise God for His mighty acts, His mighty acts. Why does he say this? It isn't just that God is certain things, but also that God does certain things within history. Uh, you know, Judaism did not only conceptualize God as a sort of remote, archetypal ideal, you know, the, the uh, ideal good or the unmoved mover. No, God was also the one who certainly was those things, but He was the one who parts the seas, who frees the slaves, who sends manna from heaven, who uh, gives words to prophet, who, prophets, who carves laws into rocks and eventually uh, comes among us in the person of Jesus Christ, right? The Hebrew God is an interventionist God, a God who, to quote Exodus 3, comes down, a God who acts and who continues to act and continues to act upon your person even in this very moment, whether you sense it or not. Now, that's a very profound thing. So, you have this theology that he is reflecting upon and praising God for, of a God who is certain things in his isness, right? Holy, powerful, great, and a God who acts in time and space. Now, you may know the uh, philosopher Feuerbach. He uh, believed that all of religion was projection. He thought, he was completely convinced, that religion was just you taking you and all of your idiosyncrasies and pasting them upon the heavens. And so really you're just worshiping a uh, slightly gussied up version of yourself. Judaism proves just the opposite because the Hebrew God, the God of Old and New Testaments, is a God who is unlike you and unlike me at the deepest possible level, a God who is the source of all might and power, a God who is the source of undefilement, and a God who intervenes always, always for the well-being of those who are the recipients of that intervention. God is unlike us, says Judaism, therefore we worship Him. Now, there is a, an Italian HBO series that I'm a little obsessed with, uh, in which um, a priest uh, in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is eulogizing 
a recently deceased uh, friend of his named Girolamo, and Girolamo in the series is uh, a handicapped person who is heroic and sort of reclusive. And the priest in his eulogy, which is filled with tears and grief over the loss of his friend, says this, I say this for all of you who are not fortunate enough to know my friend Girolamo. He is kind, joyous, and full of life. He loves to talk, but he also likes to listen and to give me advice. He likes to watch TV and listen to the radio. He loves to run and dance and sing and pray. He loves to swim at the sunset. He loves kindness because he knows how to be a true friend. It's true. As I'm sad to admit, Girolamo is everything that I am not and everything that we are not, which is why we gather here to celebrate, contemplate, and adore him, because we are not like him and because we would like to be. Similarly, those sentiments could be offered to God, that we worship the God who is not like us, who is grandly differentiated and is a non-projected deity. We praise God for his qualities, for the fact that he acts. We praise God because he's not like us, but because we would like to be more like him. And so these are the reasons that the psalmist praises God, the four reasons. But there's also some withness in this psalm. The psalmist commands the praising of God with certain things. And we have here a veritable symphony. In fact, seven different instruments are mentioned. The text says, beginning in verse 3, praise him with the sound of the trumpet, then later with the lute, with the harp, with the trimbles, timbrels, with the strings, with the pipe, with the cymbals. What is the psalmist saying? That whatever the worship of Almighty God ought to look like, it ought to be robust. Our praise is offered not only by human voices, but by every instrument that the Hebrew people had access to in order to produce this loud cacophony of sounds. The idea was the supreme grandeur and greatness of God ought to be in some ways reflected by His people's worship, that they should... Uh, it, to use organ language, pull out all the stops. You may know, if any of you are organists in here or know anything about the organ, the stops are the various things on an organ that make different sounds, and if you pull them all out, you create this massive, massive swelling sound. And that's really what this psalm is saying, that the supremeness of God is to be reflected in voluminous grandeur in praise. In other words, God deserves, to quote Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest offering our best to God. Um, I have a, a friend who, in the 1970s, attended a Reform synagogue, uh, grew up Jewish, and uh, in this synagogue, it was, you know, it was the 70s, so people were a little bit hippified, right? It was the flower children generation, and my friend decided to, that she would no longer wear the black gown that was typically associated with synagogue attendance, but would start dressing like a hippie. Did that. Did it week after week, and everybody was perfectly polite and nice. Uh, but the rabbi, a young man uh, at the synagogue, had his elderly father there. His elderly father had uh, withstood the onslaught of the German Holocaust, right? So he survived the atrocities of Germany and at one point very sweetly took my friend aside and said, you know, when we were in the shtetl and had nothing, uh, when we had no voice in the world and when we were very poor, we still put on our best for Shabbat. And we still offered God our voices as loudly as we could as we sang the psalms because we realized that this day was meant for Almighty God 
and we did not want to hold anything back that was dignified. You know, she always wore the black after that, you know, because that was her way of acknowledging the day. But the point is in this psalm that they're pulling out all the stops to offer God everything that is due him, to reflect in a small way the grandeur of the one whom they were worshiping. But the psalm doesn't stop there. I want to note how it concludes in Psalm 150. It concludes in verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, oh praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath. That's, you know, a fairly inclusive phrase, everything that has breath. That means not just Levites, not just choristers in the temple, not just Israelites, not just Gentiles, not just people, but everything that has breath. Um, there's this um, fascinating, it's, uh, some of you might know it, it's the uh, Perak Sharat, it's an ancient uh, Jewish form of theater that uses the scripture but in kind of a theatrical portrayal, and it ascribes various verses of Psalm 150 to different earthly creatures, different animals that speak the words, that speak the words of this psalm. And the last verse of this psalm, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, is placed in the mouth of a rat. The rat has the last word. It's genius. They put the praise of Almighty God in this unclean, dirty animal because everything that has breath will praise the Lord. Meaning, uh, in Psalm 150, both inanimate objects, that is the musical instruments that are played to praise God, and the animate creatures, everything that has breath, everything was made for praise. That's everything's in, in intended construction. That was what the great artisan and architect of heaven sought to do in creation, that the earth and the heavens together reflect the glory of God, that everything has the capacity to reflect glory, the glory of the great creator, and to be, if I can put it this way, small s, living sacraments, if you will, that reflect a greater glory. And that's why, no matter what you think of yourself, or if you really hate yourself tonight, I have to say that God has a different disposition than you, um, because God created you especially in his likeness and image, and you reflect something of the heavens, and we're born to do that, and you do that especially as you offer the thanks that is due to your source. Now, the vast book of Psalms, all 150 of them, include a variety of themes, and many of them reflect a torrent of human emotion. Talk about emotion. Now, people that say, well, the, the mind is really what is spiritual, but the emotions are earthly and crass. Um, that's actually heretical, but that's for another day. Um, to think your mind is unfallen, but your emotions are, are a complete you know, bastion of sin is not biblical. But, um, but the Psalms reflect a myriad of emotions that are welcomed into the courts of heaven from sorrow to rage to grief and everything in between. But the end of the Psalter, the end of Psalm 150 is praise. I love this. This is how it ends. This is how it wraps up, very self-consciously. Praise, not complaint. Praise, not griping. Praise, not cynicism. Praise, not rage. Praise. In the end, praise wins. The Bible in the long run, is unapologetically optimistic. This is why uh, St. Chrysostom says that Christians ought to be children of the dawn. 
that we are people who look um, toward the completion and mirth and praise um, of, 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 that, is, that, that comes at the fullness of time, that our whole faith is predicated on the notion that there is a substructure that is deeper than our pain, deeper than death, and that substructure is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has made all things good, right? Human thriving occurs whenever we verbally recognize that ultimately good substructure. And that's what the psalmist is doing, praising God uh, for things, praising God with things. Now, I want to give an applicatory word to all of us about the worship wars. The worship wars, and then I'm done. Now, I don't mean what most Christians mean by the term worship wars. At least in the 90s and early aughts, the worship wars meant hostility between those who prefer traditional worship and those who prefer contemporary worship. I don't care about any of that. What I mean is this the world, at least the fallen aspect, the deformed aspect of creation, the world wars against worship. The world wars against the praise of God. It wars against our worship in one of two ways. First, it wants to choke the praise out of you. It wants to make you mute regarding the heavens, or worse, make you a hater of the heavens to replace praise with spite. Or second, it wants to reroute your praise so that you end up giving all of your adoration to lesser lights, to give all of your adoration to reason or education or science or romance or children or presidents or nations or gender identity or the arts or whatever, anything else. It doesn't care. But reroute the praise to the lesser lights. In the old world, we called that idolatry. But what sin seeks to do and what the construction of a sinful world seeks to do is to violate true praise, to violate that great reflection of, uh, of, of adoration toward the Almighty. And with this war against worship, how do we learn to be a praiser? How do we learn to be a praiser in the midst of such an onslaught? How do we refrain from being cynical or an idolater? Well, I think... Learning to be a praiser involves both practice as well as love. And here's what I mean. First, praise is something we practice. It's something we practice. What do I mean? Our sinful nature, in and of itself, outside of rede redeeming love, doesn't praise. And so, it's not used to praising. And so, praise itself becomes a new habit in the redeemed life. But it doesn't always feel natural, at least not at first. Complaint feels natural. Praise doesn't. Praise often feels foreign. I learned a lot about praise uh, when I used to sit in 12-step uh, uh, meetings. I'm not an alcoholic, but I used to love going to AA meetings um, because they were so raw and honest. Uh, but in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, do you know how they uh, um, teach people in the throes of addiction to praise? They do. They, uh, they talk about it a lot. It's endlessly written about. Here's what they teach. As soon as you feel compulsion to drink yourself to death or to binge on alcohol, they say, stop. This is, it feels so artificial. Stop, get a piece of paper and a pencil, and write down 10 things you're grateful to God for. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your temptation, in the midst of withdrawal, um, 
offer thanksgiving. The thing that is the least intuitive thing to do, do that very thing. Write 10 things you're grateful to God for. And sometimes they read these gratitude lists in the groups. Right, I, you know, I've heard, the, I've heard wild ones. I just love them. I praise you that I felt, my, this is my favorite, I praise you that I felt really weak today because it reminded me that I'm always dependent upon you. Or, I thank you for my sponsor who sticks with me even though I'm impossible to deal with. Or, I thank you for my family that has put up with so much hell from me. You know. But they found a way to thank God in the crucible and sometimes to thank God for the crucible because it reminded them of their weakness in humanity. Well, there's a phrase in AA that goes like this, griping leads to addiction, gratitude leads to God. Griping leads to addiction, because the more griping you do, the more negative you become, and then the more you need to satiate your negativity with some sort of numbing out, you know, addiction, addictive pattern. But gratitude leads to God. Uh, here's the point that praise doesn't always come naturally, and we very often have to practice it like a discipline, uh, but there's endless value in doing that. And so I, I, you could do this very easily, by the way. It doesn't have to be uh, like Cranmer, the guy who wrote our Book of Common Prayer with endless subordinate clauses. <laughs> you could make it very simple. You could just praise God for his qualities. You can, it's very easy. Um, thank you that you're not like me. Thank you that you're uh, utterly consistent and that you're reliable. Uh, thank you that you're non-moody. Thank you that you're the unchallenged king and sovereign of the world. Thank you that in the end, you do win. Uh, thank you that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Thank you that you're the alpha and the omega. You started the story, you're gonna finish the story. Thank you, right? Or you can praise God for his activity. You know, thank you that you chase us down. Thank you that you uh, salve our wounds. Thank you that you forgive me of things that I can't forgive myself for. Uh, thank you that you laid down on the cross for me. Thank you that you take care of us after we die. Thank you that you send your Holy Spirit to do things in us that we can't manufacture ourselves. Thank you that you never let us go. Thank you that all things work together for good. You know, you could just thank him for that because it's, it's a relief to you because that means I don't have to take the credit for all the good things in my life. I can see everything in my life as a gift and then you're free. When you see everything in your life as a gift, uh, you, you don't have to sort of overown. You can instead just enjoy it for what it is, for the season you've been given it. Uh, so praise is indeed a practice. It's a practice that becomes more normative as we do it. But more importantly, more importantly, praise is a response to love. Praise is a response to love. If we lack in praise, it's often because we haven't been fully struck by the love that has made itself tangible in Christ. If we find ourselves haunted by a restless and relentless negativity, it's very often because the um, beautifying nature of the atonement of what Christ has accomplished on the cross needs to simply work further into the heart to liberate us from that um, uh, rampant negativity because his love is really the fountainhead of all praise. His love is the fountainhead of praise. Uh, you know, because how does this work? Well, we were once completely captive to our own vanity and self-obsession and we, were, we once employed our voices as well as our instruments of a variety of sorts to praise a million unworthy plastic gods. You have yours, I have mine. And it was then that love rose up like a tidal wave and conquered you and cleaned you. Not when you were ready, but before that. Jesus stepped into a praiseless world, and he received from us not our adoration, but our harshest condemnation. 
But he took it, all of it, every word of rejection. And by his offense and sin-bearing death and tangible resurrection, he claimed you. He claimed you. He pardoned you. He changed you from a villain into a sibling, and not just a sibling, but a singer, an official praiser in the court of the kingdom, people who learn the new and lovely language of adoration, people who can rightly say, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Friends, may that be our reaction to love. May that be our language. May that be our song. May we always be people who say, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Free at last, Amen. they took your life, they could not take your